0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for May 2011. Today's episode is titled, Modernism and Postmodernism in the Workplace. The popular TV series, NCIS, displays an interesting paradox. In the basement where the medical examiner and forensic scientist work, the worldview is modernism. Modernism is based on the belief that truth exists and can be empirically discovered. Modernists believe in absolutes absolute truth, and timeless universal principles that govern the physical world. If you want your organization to enjoy divine blessings, you must learn and practice God's timeless universal principles for organizational behavior. Furthermore, the people you hire must also learn and practice those principles. If your organization is committed to delivering an outstanding value proposition, then everyone in the organization must find great delight in God's timeless universal principles. To facilitate this reality in your organization, management must be committed to training and discipleship as tools to facilitate learning and practicing these principles. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Postmodernism. Father, we thank you for the
1: privilege of studying your word and we thank you for the hunger and thirst here by the people in this room who want to know you and want to walk with you. And want intimacy with you. Want to learn how to obey you. Grant them the grace to step forward tonight. To go to another level of understanding and revelation and insight as to what it is to know you. So Father, we commit this study to you. We pray that you give us wisdom and discernment. To study this clearly and correctly and to hear what you want us to hear. And most of all, to learn to live the way you want us to live. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, our topic tonight is postmodernism, and it's one of my favorite topics, not because I'm excited that our culture is postmodern, but I'm excited to talk about it with you and hopefully enlighten you some and get you to thinking about the culture. You know, I was reading a book the the other night about this, and the writer said very clearly that uh, he he talked about this uh, preacher that went to Africa and preached a sermon about why God existed and went into these long, elaborate explanations of why God existed. And then when he got through, uh, one of the leaders in the group came up to him and said, you know, that was a great sermon, but we all believe God exists. Meaning, you didn't understand enough about where we were and where we are to be relevant to us. You spoke to us about something that we we already believe God exists. So postmodernism is part of the culture today, and if we don't take the time to study and understand the culture, we will not be relevant when we interact with the culture. So the purpose tonight is to not make you postmodern. The purpose tonight is to help you to understand postmodernism, what it is, where it's come from, why it's not biblical, and then give you hopefully some tips for how you can begin to respond to postmodernism. Well, first we want to do a review, so those of you that are in the worldview class, hopefully you can just jump all over these questions, and this will go real fast. Okay, so what is a worldview? It's an intellectual construct or a model that enables you to answer all the questions of existence. So what is the overriding hypothesis that every human being makes that drives his or her life? That is, your worldview is based on a hypothesis. What is the hypothesis? It's more than that there is a God. It's your view of God, what you believe God to be, his character and his nature. Okay, why is understanding biblical worldview important? Everything that you do every day is based on your worldview. So if there's only one worldview, and Jesus Christ indicated that he is the only way to God, which means there is only one worldview, then you need to learn a biblical worldview or you won't know how to live well. Secondly, it gives you the vehicle to counter the arguments of the world. So understanding biblical worldview is the way that you now can re- respond to the world. Just an example of this, you know, when they study, when people study counterfeit money and how to identify, identify counterfeit money, do you know what they do? They study the real. What worldviews do 95% of the world's population profess? even though you can make up any view of God that you want and create any worldview that you want, there are only basically a few that, that most people would subscribe to. Either Christian, Islam, secular, Hindu, Chinese, or Buddhist. Those are, 95% of the world would subscribe to one of those worldviews. Each of those is built on a different view of God. Okay, so this is how it works. Whatever your view of God is will define your worldview and therefore how you live. Now, please don't be freaked out by this, okay? (laughs) This is an analysis chart of those various worldviews. I'm putting it in your notes mainly for reference. Uh, Obviously, we could spend a whole course going through and analyzing these different worldviews. But those of you in the worldview course, you should be familiar with these terms here. Theology, ontology, epistemology, hermeneutics, anthropology, teleology, and ethics. This is just an analysis tool to help you begin to look at different worldviews. Obviously, theology is the driving consideration who is God? You can see the different worldviews all have a different view of God. That leads you to a totally different worldview. Same way with ontology. This is the nature of existence. Is it real? Is there an illusion? Does truth exist? And if it does, can you know truth? Is the world dualistic or holistic? These are all questions of existence. And different worldviews have different perspectives. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. We're going to talk about this a good bit because this is where postmodernism really begins to go off track, is in epistemology. Hermeneutics is how do you interpret what you know. Anthropology is the understanding of the nature of man. Teleology is the nature of purpose. And ethics is really how we behave. It's the rules of living. So these are, this is just a simple analysis tool. What I want to show you real quickly here is notice that under this one, I've got Christ as the answer. Okay? Does anybody get it? Okay? You get it? it, all, it, it Christianity is all about Christ. And every one of these issues can be defined in terms of Christ. No other worldview looks to Christ for any of these answers. Please understand that. Now, a lot of worldviews will steal things from Christianity. In fact, any worldview that has any kind of standing, the only reason they have standing is they have stolen something from Christianity. And they've stolen a principle, a value, an idea. As a result of that, people will begin to listen and give it some credibility. But Christianity is uniquely centered on Christ. No other worldview is. Now, secularism is 17% of the world's population as of the time I got this statistic, which was about two years ago, Christianity was 32. So you can see Christianity is the majority worldview in the world. This one is growing rapidly, Islam. Secular is, is growing as well. And this is where we find postmodernism. It's under the secular category. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things right here. You notice that their epistemology is, is based on rationalism and empiricism. Rationalism is all about the mind, thinking, okay? Empiricism is about experimentation. Okay? And the way they interpret things is through their reason. So that's very important to recognize. Another thing is you see, they believe that man is fundamentally good. Very, very important thing to recognize, because if you believe man is fundamentally good, then man can be empowered by his goodness. And so one of the fundamental axioms of postmodernism is called human potency that's going to be on the test so you got to get that one human potency because we're going to come back to that one we're going to see how that plays out so i just want to give you a little exposure to that now i want to give you a little exercise this is a very simple exercise it'll take us just a couple of minutes to do it first question is no harm no foul do you say that do you say you ever say no harm no foul yes yes or no okay if you say if you do say yes okay I'm asking you, do you say the following? No harm, no foul. The next one is to each his own. Okay, yes or no? Do you ever say it? If you ever said it. Okay. All right. Whatever. Okay, yes or no? Are you running out of ink? All right, never apologize. It's a sign of weakness. Okay all right what's in it for me you ever say that be honest How about if it feels good it can't be wrong what i do in private is my business everyone has to discover his or her own truth and whatever you do have fun and you can't legislate morality okay so you mark you know yes or no if you ever say these statements ever anytime you said these statements Okay, And the last one here is, is your well-being defined by your circumstances, yes or no? If I come up and ask you, how are you doing, you're going to tell me based on how your day went, based on the circumstances. If it was a tough day, it was a bad day. If it was an easy day, it was a good day. Is that the way you answer? Okay. Now, hopefully you can see that if you answered yes to all of these, You've got a lot of postmodernism in you, okay? Because these are basically postmodern sayings, and this is a very postmodern idea, okay? Postmodernism is all about, about people-centered. It's all about fun. It's all about comfort. It's all about pleasure. It's all about me. It's very single generation, and it's, it's thinking. It's all about making life easy and pleasant. That's what postmodernism is all about. So let me give you a little history here. Just kind of go back and tell you a little bit about how postmodernism came about. Postmodernism is a form of secular worldview, which is the third most popular worldview, which is humanism. Humanism is the broader category. Postmodernism is a subcategory of humanism. And uh, this gentleman right here, Pythagoras, most of you probably know heard of the Pythagorean theorem. You familiar with that? Okay, well, he was a great thinker. He is He's one of the early thinkers that began to articulate some of the concepts of postmodernism. He said, man is the measure of all things. And secondly, if you think it's true, it's true. Okay, so this, this started way back, you know, 400, over 400 years before Christ came. Now, actually, it goes back further than that, because if you go back to the book of Judges, you find this statement. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right, in his own eyes. You see, that's the, that's the real early Genesis of postmodernism. And I guess you could argue, really, it's Genesis chapter 3. Because that whole thing with the fall was all about me. What's in it for me? It was a very self centered, self oriented action that impacts all of us today. So postmodernism is nothing new. We act like it's new, but the, the current expression of it you know, is been developing for the last few hundred years. So for the first 1,500 years of church history, that is from the time Christ left, you know, through about, you know, the Reformation, the epistemology that was popular, was widely accepted, was theocentric, meaning God was the center of it. And it was based on a view that God was unchangeable, and he was revealed through the Bible largely through deductive reasoning. Now, this is not their worldview was not totally correct because God is also revealed through inductive reasoning. But they didn't really appreciate that because the first 1,500 years of church history was largely influenced by Greek thinking. The Greeks did not value inductive thinking. If it weren't for Christians bringing inductive thinking into, into the scientific realm, we wouldn't have the conference that we have today. You know, most of the modern development has happened over the last couple of hundred years. Just just take a look at history. Go back and see like how, how things were 300 years ago. And then 200 years ago, 100 years ago, and you see dramatic changes. Well, that's because Christian men and women begin to embrace inductive reasoning as a tool to understand God and God's creation and therefore to advance his creation through that reasoning process. So... That's been a fairly recent development. So the first 1,500 years of history were were very very little development going on, but there was some good thinking going on in that it was very God-centered, and it was based on an unchangeable God. And one of the postmodern positions is there's no such thing as something that's unchangeable. There's no absolutes. There's no foundational reality. And so this is what's going to change now, And it begins as we have people like Martin Luther coming along. Now, you say, well, gee, what's Martin Luther got to do with postmodernism? Well, well, just a little bit. He doesn't have much to do with it, but he does have a little bit to do with it because what he did is he came along and challenged the authority of the church. You see, one of the things about postmodernism is it disdains authority. It disdains tradition. It disdains history. It has no regard for that. And so, Luther, even though he was very, very, I think, right in, in what he did in challenging some of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, there's always some kind of un, undesirable side effects. It's kind of like when you take a medicine, piece, you know, a pill to make you better. There's always some side effects. Well, there's side effects even when you do things that are good. And so, one of the side effects here is he kind of opened the door for challenging authority. So, he had just a little bit to do with its development. Then you have Francis Bacon. He shows up a little bit after Luther, and he brought inductive reasoning to the table. And what he basically said is, you know, the Greek approach of only doing deductive reasoning, and let me explain that to you. Deductive reasoning is where you come up with an intellectual theory, and then you do thought experiments. You kind of reason your way through to a conclusion. Okay? By the way, that's how Einstein did his theory of relativity, too. He did it this way. But nevertheless, that's, that's the way they did it. Now, inductive reasoning is where you actually go out and you do experiments, where you go out and observe, you sense things, you observe things, you feel things, you smell things, and you then try to understand what is this. You're trying to basically go on from these, these, these pieces of evidence to uh, construct some theory, whereas deductively what you do is you start with a theory and then reason out to the conclusions of that theory. So he brought it, he basically challenged the conventional thinking of the day and introduced what became known as the scientific method. And the scientific method is basically where you theorize, you put a hypothesis out there, and now instead of logically thinking it through, you do experiments to test it. So it became a different way of approaching epistemology. See, this is all about how do you know what you know? Do you only know through deductive reasoning or do you also know through inductive reasoning? Now... Please know, we're we're not going to spend a lot of time on this theory. Okay, I know you're, I could hear somebody saying, come on, I didn't come to get this. But you've got to understand some of the theory to understand what's happening. I'm going to give you some practical examples of how this works out. I'm trying to point out the high points of the critical things that happened that shaped it. Then you have de Those of you that had philosophy, you know this guy. He's the father of modern philosophy. And he came along and said, I am thinking, therefore I exist. His whole, whole thesis was to doubt everything. I don't believe anything except that I doubt. I mean, I mean that in and of itself was internally inconsistent. But, but anyway, that's, that was his thinking. Basically what he did, rationalism and man-centeredness challenged epistemology based on revelation. You see, prior to him, people looked to revelation from God to get knowledge. They look to an unchangeable God who revealed himself in the Bible as their source of knowledge. Now, what he's saying, we can reason our way to knowledge without God. They're they're taking God out of the equation here. And now they're talking about making man the focal point of epistemology. No longer is God the focal point. So, what you have here is objective universal truth can be fully known through reason with no God bias. Or some theologians would say, no God hypothesis. So with him, there's no need for talk about God. So he is the one that really began to give atheists a foothold. You know, there was really no atheism really to speak of prior to this. Because it wasn't no, intellectually acceptable being an atheist. All right, so now we have Descartes we have come along talking about the value of reason. And then we have John Locke comes along and he's talking about empirical knowledge And he's really saying, well, well, to start, you know, I understand you're really into thinking and all that, which is great, but the reality is is we really learn through experience. We learn through trial and error. We learn through experimentation. So he really talked about discovering truth from observation using our senses. Then we have Hume coming along. Now, Hume is the one that begins to first really sow the seeds of postmodernism because what's going on up to now is called modernism. Modernism is a rejection of the prior worldview, which was based on God. Modernism is now about man and man's ability to think and learn inductively as well as deductively. And Hume comes along and says, wait a minute. How do you know that X causes Y? How do you know that? He says, you can say X, you know, Y follows X, but you can't tell me that Y is caused by X. So he questioned that. He begins to question modernism. You see, postmodernism fundamentally is a doubt, a question about modernism. That's fundamentally what it is. So he began to introduce that idea. Then you have Kant. Most of you have heard of him if you had any kind of philosophy classes. He said, hey, you know, uh, Locke and, and Desartes were really both correct. We can learn through our reasoning and we can learn through experimentation, so we'll pull this together. And so basically he's the one that really brought the idea of expanding our knowledge both ways. But at the same time, he began to question, can you really know reality? How well can you know reality? Because you're limited to you. you. know, And reality could be a whole lot bigger than you think. You might just see a little piece of it. So you can see postmodernism is all about truth being relative to you. See, if truth is relative to you, there's no absolute truth. Very important part about postmodernism. That's why you hear things like, well, to each his own. Whatever, whatever you believe is okay, because you define truth for yourself. So Kant really began to sow seeds of that thinking. Then you have Dewey. Anybody remember Dewey? This guy was been very influential in the education system in America. He came along and says, look, we can't really know anything about reality very well. The only thing we can know is what works. If it works, that's what we're going to do. So he brought pragmatism into the equation, and uh, he's been a tremendous influence on education in the United States since really early on. Now, actually, public education really started in about the 1840s, and it was started actually by Christians. Sadly, they didn't have a good motive. So public education has never had a period of time where you could say, wow, that was really the golden time, the golden years, the time when they really did it right. It never has been right. It's always been corrupted and perverted on some level. And then when Dewey came in with his pragmatism, it just accelerated it. So this, is, this you can see how postmodernism is really coming to play. Pragmatism is a big part of it. So these threads of thinking were developed based on the presupposition that truth and reality exist and can be known to some degree independent of God. And you know, in the midst of all this, we have Darwin's theory of evolution. And Darwin's theory of evolution is very important to the atheist because it gives the atheist what they perceive to be an intellectually satisfying way to deal with reality. Without evolution, they cannot explain creation. Without, without evolution, they have no way to explain it, so they're stuck. But now, with this theory of evolution, they can explain it, and so now it's intellectually satisfying to be an atheist. At least that's what they say. Now, the reality is, if you've watched the movie Expelled, have you all watched that movie? Yeah. One of the things that that movie did so very well was exposed that the scientific community is not intellectually honest when it comes to, to looking at creation. That movie was, was trying to uncover the question, can we have a discussion about intelligent design? The movie was not promoting intelligent design. Some people get confused about it. You go back and look at the movie. It was simply asking the question, can we have a discussion about intelligent design? And what they concluded and what they found was if you even brought up the question, you would be fired. Meaning there was an intellectual bias against it. And the reason there's a bias against having the conversation is because they are atheists and they do not want to even... Bring that up because if they bring it up, it you know, and they lose, and evolution becomes not uncredible, incredible, then they have no basis for their atheism. So it's attacking their god, which is why it's such a sensitive subject. So you can see how these things have developed. Now, what I want to do is show you uh, the presupposition that Peter predicted, you know, thousands, uh, hundreds of years before, going that would happen. He predicted postmodernism, He predicted the theory of evolution. Did you know that? He predicted it was coming. So I just want to read you what I've underlined here and explain to you what this is saying. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is his, this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, that is a lie. That is an assumption that's called uniformitarianism. Who's ever heard of that principle? The principle of uniformitarianism. That is the principle that's at the root of evolutionary theory. It's the principle that says we can, look at, we can do experiments today and we can use the data today and assume that everything has always happened today like it always has. Okay, that there were no cataclysmic events that dramatically changed way way physical processes happened. So we can do carbon dating and we can expect the, the results that we get today would be like they would always have been historically. Well, that's a lie. Because they deliberately, you see that word deliberately? Do you know what that tells me? There are really no atheists at all. Atheists are liars. They might say I'm an atheist, but they don't really exist. They're liars. In fact, I'm going to give you some survey data at the end that in this survey it shows there only about five percent of the population even profess to be an atheist. Okay. But they deliberately forget that long ago God by God's word the heavens existed. That is, God created them, and the earth was formed out of the water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Let's talk about the flood. The flood is is what destroys the principle of uniformitarianism and what makes the theory of evolution invalid. You can't believe any of the data. Because all the data assumes something contrary to what really happened. This is why evolutionary theory is such a bunk. It's, it's, it's a crock of lies, and it's deceiving us because of this very reality here. So I just want to show you this because many Christians don't get it, don't understand. The scriptures predicted the time we're in and predicted the theory of evolution and what it would do to us. Now let's talk about a definition of postmodernism. And again, this is a long definition, so let me read it to you here. A general, basically, postmodernism is a general and wide ranging term which is applied to literature, art, philosophy, architecture, fiction, and culture and literary criticism, among others. Postmodernism is largely a reaction to the assumed certainty of scientific and objective efforts to explain reality. You see, modernism was all about we can understand everything just by, by reasoning. And then when you add empiricism into it, now we have an, an empirical way to validate things. So we had this incredible ability to learn and to grow our knowledge. So that was the age of reasoning from, you know, the 17th and 18th, or really the 16th, 17th, 1800s, that time frame. That was also called the Age of Enlightenment. That's also the time when this country was born, the United States of America. And if you go look at the founding documents, you're going to see little signs that they were buying into the modernism. And one of the signs is the term self-evident truths. That was one of the common sayings of the modern saying. There are certain truths that are self-evident, and we start with those self-evident truths, and we build from those. And we use our reasoning, our logic, and therefore that's how we produce this, this view of, of, of uh, reality that is complete and comprehensive. So postmodernism is bunk. We don't believe that at all. In essence, it stems from a recognition that reality is not simply mirrored in human understanding of it, but rather is constructed as the mind tries to understand its own particular and personal reality. You see, postmodernism doesn't believe that that Steve can find truth. Steve can find things that he thinks are true, but it's only true to him. It isn't necessarily true to anybody else. See, it's very individual. Personal interpretation is a big part of postmodernism. For this reason, postmodernism is highly skeptical of explanations which claim to be valid for all groups, cultures, traditions, or races, and instead focuses on the relative truths of each person. In the postmodern understanding, interpretation is everything. Reality only comes into being through our interpretation of what the world means to us individually. We each have the freedom to interpret reality any way we want to. And conclude whatever we want to conclude, because there is no objective truth. There is no truth that's uniformly true. You see, it's all very individual. All right, postmodernism relies on concrete experience over abstract principles. In other words, they don't want to think. They want to feel. It's very much feeling, emotions, whatever you feel. You know, how do you feel about that? You ever heard anybody say, how do you feel about that? That's a very postmodern way of asking what your opinion is. Okay? As opposed to, you know, what's the basis for your thought process there? Why do you believe what you believe? They want to say, well, how do you feel about that? Just a very soft and gentle, you know, emotional connection. Okay? So postmodernism relies on concrete experience over abstract principles, knowing always that the outcome of one's own personal experience will necessarily be fallible and relative rather than certain and universal. In other words, whatever's true for you is is true for you, but it doesn't apply to anybody else. Well, let me just go through now our little model here, our analysis tool of theology to ethics, and again remind you a biblical worldview is all about Christ, and a postmodern worldview is all about being relative, meaning relative to you and relative to whatever else is going on. For example, theology. It can be atheistic or theistic. A postmodern doesn't care because there's no absolute truth. So whatever you want to believe about God is okay. Ontology or the question of existence. There's no universal or absolute or historical truth, which is why they put no stock in history. They do not care what historically has worked, what what fathers may have said. They have no respect for authority because everything is about them. It's very man-centered in whatever they want to believe epistemology it's all about rational empirical in other words what is your experience and how do you interpret your experience and of course their hermeneutic is all it's all private it's a personal interpretation and it's in your the context of your life so it's also very pragmatic It's whatever works for you so it's all this is this to me is the heart of the matter is this their epistemology and their hermeneutics is all it's very subjective and we're not going for anything that says this is the truth. There's only what's true for you. Anthropology, because they do not believe in depravity, they believe that man's basically good and therefore has incredible human potential. You can see where Marxism came from. Those of you that are familiar with Marxism. You know, Marxism believed that what was holding man back from expressing his goodness was all these crooked business people. And all these people trying to make money out there in their companies. That's holding them back. So we've got to get rid of them, get that out of the equation so the goodness of man can come forth. You see, that's very postmodern. So human potency is a very, very big thing about postmodernism. And you need to recognize we all have this in us. We think we can do whatever we want to do. You just watch it some, you know, just the things you grew up with. I mean, Superman. You know, how many of y'all wanted to be Superman when you grew up? I mean, most people, you know, you got enamored with Superman. Superman could do anything, you know, bend bars and, you know, fly through walls and, you know, take care of the criminals. He could do anything. And we thought, hey, we could do that too, you know, or maybe like the Lone Ranger. You know, we'd show up just in time to right the wrong, and we wouldn't have to wait around to be thanked. We'd just be out of there going on to our next assignment. I mean, this, this is all built on human potency. What we didn't get is we were being indoctrinated with postmodernism to the culture. And I assure you, if you just sit down, take this analysis tool or some of the other notes, and just watch some of the programming that's going on today, you'll see it in spades. Postmodernism in spades. Because that is the culture that we're in. Teleology, it's all about being self-defined and driven by pleasure. Everybody decides whatever they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it. I was having lunch today, and the guy you know made a comment to me he says, "You know um, you know here, you know he, he, he I guess he viewed me as an older guy. I don't think of myself as an older guy, but he did <laughs> so he was wondering you know uh, what I was doing with my time you know are you not playing golf or you doing that are you doing this and uh, you know act like you know all kinds of different ways that I could choose to use my time and and like any one of them would be okay whatever I wanted to do would be okay. So I said to him, well uh, what if I just choose to obey? And then he oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, that's a whole different different paradigm. Most people don't think about obedience to God. What's that got to do with life? Oh, well, oh church, we talk about that. Yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with the rest of life. I mean, come on, get real. We're out here living in a real world, and what's God got to do with the real world? So, this, you know, we get into this postmodernism. Comfort, pleasure. Uh, I was talking to another guy today. And he had read a, my last business tip, which I talked about, hedonism. And it really had touched him. He said, man, I know a bunch of friends of mine that, you know, they've made a lot of money. And every time I call them, they're on vacation. They just go on one vacation after another. And they just give thanks to God because they have all this money. They can take all these vacations. And I realized they're just they're just hedonists. They're postmodern. It's all about them and their pleasure. But they're running around talking about how, God, how good God is to them. You see... It can be very subtle. It can sound so good. It can feel good. It can, you know, we even call those people successful. Do you know that? Because, see, our definition of success is all about the money, right? Is Bill Gates a success? Come on, you can answer. Is he a success, huh? Yeah, everybody would say he's a success. Okay, is Warren Buffett a success? Huh? Well, I mean, most of us would say Warren Buffett's a success. And, and then, of course, then you say, why? And they'll say, well, they a bunch of money. And then I'll say, well, what about Jesus? He died broke. Is he a success? And then usually somebody pops up and says, well, that's different. Well, how is that different? <laughs> well, because, I mean, he was a spiritual person, right? Yeah, I mean, he was a worldly guy. You know, we got these different definitions. See, we're buying into the world's culture. You know something? I don't have a clue if Bill Gates is a success. do not have a clue because I don't know what his call is. I don't know about Warren Buffett because I don't know his call either. So unless you can validate somebody's call and in some way measure are they lining up with what they're called to do, you don't really have a barometer to determine whether or not they're a success. Now, see, that's biblical thinking. That's not cultural thinking. Culture is all about outward pleasure and outward success. Okay, and finally, the ethics. The ethics here, it's all self-defined, no absolutes, a total disdain for authority. Nobody tells me what to do. You heard that one? Nobody tells me what to do. That's very postmodern right there. Okay, postmodernism is inconsistent, as our lovely lady said. Just to give you an example here, for example, truth. Postmodernism asserts that there is no absolute truth. This implies that a postmodernist would not believe in the absolute truth of gravity or any of the physical law. There's no absolute truth that gravity is not absolute. Okay? So if I'm a true postmodernist, I'm not sure I want to get in an airplane. I'm not sure I want to go see a doctor because just because you know the anatomy in you, might you know, his treatment might work for you doesn't mean it's going to work for me because my, my anatomy may be different because there's no universal anatomy. There's no universal treatment. You see, every day we live assuming that there are universal standards. Every day we assume when we eat our food, it's going to be good food for us. What if tomorrow decide, God decided carrots are going to poison you, but he didn't tell you? It would be kind of scary, wouldn't it? Whoops, the rules changed overnight. I didn't know that, and now I'm going to be dead tomorrow because I ate carrots. Well, see, we, we just take it for granted. We don't even think about the absolutes that we live in and we depend on these things for our existence. The postmoderns just poo-poo and say there's no absolutes without realizing it's totally ridiculous. You can't live that way. Even pragmatically you can't live that way. How about ethical relativism? Alright? And postmodern asserts that values are defined by each individual. So let's suppose that I I decide that stealing is okay. My decision. I get to make up my rules. So I'm gonna I'm gonna steal from Steve. Okay? Now, Steve, he may or may not agree. Okay, well, what's he going to do? Where's this going to go? How do we resolve that? And what if you have a whole culture of those kinds of conflicts? And you can't agree on a moral system, a value system, a system of right and wrong for your people. What do you have? You have absurdity. You have chaos. The logical end of postmodernism is absolute chaos. It cannot work. So let me just give you some more examples, practices, and attitudes of postmodernism. No absolute truth. The focus is now on individual opinions, not biblical truth. And so now we have all these talk shows and blogs. Have you seen that? A few years ago, when I was, when I, well, the last times I listened to radio, which has been a long time ago, I don't listen to radio at all now. Don't even turn it on in my, my car. I got my, my great messages on my iPod, you know. So I got what I need. So anyway, I, I was listening to this, uh, this talk show, and they were talking about homosexuality, and somebody calls in and says, hey, uh, you know, the Bible in Romans 1 says such and such about homosexuality, and the talk show hosts cut him off and says, we're not going to bring the Bible in this conversation. Not relevant. We only want to hear man's opinions. This, this is postmodernism. It's just all about man's opinions, no biblical thought at all. How about blogs? You, you know, y'all participate in blogs? You done not know about that? I, I was a blog editor for a few years for a, a business magazine that projected a biblical worldview. And so I would put out there conundrums and scenarios, you know, for people to react to. You know what I found out with the blogs? Is that the, the sane people didn't respond. It was all the all the, the crazy people that just had they had an ax to grind, or they were mad at God, or or they're mad at their pastor or whatever, you know? And it was just unbelievable some of the comments I got back in my eyes. These people don't want to know the truth. I would respond. I would point them to Scripture, and they would just totally disdain Scripture. Scripture has no authority in my life. Well, why are you on this blog? This blog is about a biblical worldview. Why are you? Why are you here? <laughs> You don't have anything like it. Well, this, this is where they are. They're just all over the place. I remember one time I was engaging this guy. I was, I'd written an article about homosexuality. I'd given a biblical perspective. And his, his response to me is, gay is good. And I read well back, can you give me a quote? Can you give me a text on that? He just said, gay is good. That's it. There's nothing behind it. It's just his opinion. And it's, it, it, from his perspective, he has a right to have that opinion. He thinks it's just fine. Well, guess what? We live with those people. We interact with them. They work with us. We buy goods and services from them, and their postmodern thinking is going to impact us in some way. How about no purpose beyond self, single generational thinking? And this is a great example of this is all the entitlement programs. I mean, look at this massive debt we have. And who wants to step up and make a sacrifice to get rid of that debt? Nobody. Nobody wants, to, nobody wants to pay the piper. We just keep pushing it down the line you know, to our children and our grandchildren because we're not willing to stand up and be physically responsible to be good stewards for how we live. We are very my, me-centered. What's in it for me? I remember watching a news program a few years ago, and they were interviewing this Wall Street pundit. He was talking about some trend that was going on, and it was clearly not going to have a long-term beneficial effect. And his comment was... Yeah, in 50 years, it's probably going to fall apart, but by then I'll be gone, so I'm not worried about it. That was his attitude. Some of you probably have investments with that guy. He's making decisions for you. And he's very postmodern, very single-generational. Okay, individual materialism, the economy based on narcissistic consumption. How many of you are consumers? Okay, may I suggest that if if you accept that label consumer, you've accepted a curse. You're not a consumer. You are a steward. A steward is not about consuming. A steward is about asking the master what you do with the master's resources. A consumer is all about what's in it for me. When you get a dollar bill, is that the first thing you think about what you can buy with it? If that's the way you're thinking, then you're a consumer. And I want to challenge you that's very postmodern. That's very, very non biblical thinking. We need to be thinking about what God has called us to do with everything, our time, our talent, and treasure, and not be just consuming on ourselves. Focus on the individual. No sense of sacrifice for the good of the whole. You see, we have no sense of team. Did you realize what we call the Lord's Prayer? You all know that prayer? Okay, How does it start? Does it say, my father? No, it doesn't say my father. It starts out, our father. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. He said, this is the way you pray. It's a collective prayer. I was sharing with my lunch buddy today. I said, you know, I'm, I've reflected back on that. When I went to grade school, the superintendent of the school and his wife went to my church. We used to stand up every morning, and the whole school would recite the Lord's Prayer because Edith Pierce got on the MPA system, and she led us, the whole school. Every child, every teacher, faculty member, every staff member, we're all standing and reciting Our Father, which art in heaven. That's how we started our day. I thought, wow, we had a sense of community back then. We don't have today. Today it's all about me. How about success? Fun, worries, easy life, no pain. I just want to show you a text. If you haven't seen this, and I want you to think about this for a second. Most of us, when we... We're out there working to make money so we can live the way we want to live. That's why we're, we're out there. If we're brutally honest, that's why we work. So, And we're very interested in a very pleasant and easy life. Uh, just share a little point about my wife. I, I'm, I really love what God's doing with my wife right now. My, my wife is becoming very aware of the postmodernism in her. And she, she this morning, she got up, and she, she had had her quiet time, and she says, man, it really hit me like a ton of bricks this morning. I was reading in Acts 14, and it says that to enter the kingdom of God, we must suffer many things. She said, man, I hate that, but I know I've got to walk that out. So said, that's right. That's the reality. You know, we've got to start thinking biblically about everything in our life. So anyway, if we're thinking about pleasant experiences and pleasure and spending money on our our personal comfort, look at this. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not ask because you have the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That's what most of us want, spend it on our pleasures. You adulterous people, bad sign, not a good word, okay? Don't you you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? In other words, that's the way the world thinks, is spending money on their pleasures. So here's what's going on. You have become a friend of the world, therefore you hate God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You see that? Enemy? Most of us don't like to think that we're an enemy of God. But any time we have lived making money for our own pleasures, we have been an enemy of God. Well, this is where the postmodern people live every day. They are enemies of God. Okay, a little case study. Okay, this is a this is a real deal. This has really happened. Okay. Since postmoderns are driven by a teleology of self pleasure and disdain authority. They perform work independently and only do the minimum required. Okay, so this is a real thing that happened to one of my clients. This client's in the construction business and he he prides himself on being on time, on scope and on budget doing what we say we're going to do, when we say we're going to do it, for the price that we say we're going to do it for, and obviously the infer- inference is that we do it within our budget so we make a profit. So he had a job here where he was going to lay uh, a, a concrete porch, and this has exposed aggregate. You can see the exposed aggregate right there. Okay. So there, there are two choices now for how you do this. Number one is you, put, you can put the rock on the surface, and you can see it's, this is pretty thick here. And that rock is just a little pebbles. Okay? So that's much harder to do to get the, get the rock just on the surface because it wants to sink. So it takes a very skilled workman who gets just the, the viscosity of the concrete just right to be able to put the rock in there and it, the rock doesn't sink. Is so, that clear? Okay. The other way you can do it is you can fill the whole thing full up with rock. Say, well baloney, I'm not gonna worry about having to get the concrete just right. I'm just gonna fill it all up with rock and then pour the concrete around the rock. Okay. Now, clearly this is much harder to do, and this is much easier to do. Now, the way it was bid was the hard way, which means they didn't have the money to do this in the budget. Well, what do you think the worker did? He did the easy way, Okay. because he's a postmodern worker. He took the easy way, and he didn't even ask. He just did it just spent the money, did not ask for permission or nothing. When the owner company found out about this, what do you think he said? He blew a gasket. You know, who gave you permission to deviate from what we bid? You did not have that permission. You didn't have permission because it made your life easier, and you certainly didn't have permission because you didn't even ask. The guy did not get it. Didn't see he had done anything wrong. Could not understand why the owner of the company was blowing a gasket. Could not understand that at all. Now, hopefully you guys can see this. Tell me you can see it. Convince me you can see this. Okay. That makes me feel better. I was getting worried about you for a second here. Okay. All right. Now, here's another case. This is lying. Okay. This happened to me. Okay. All right. To the postmodern, their ontology is no absolute truth. Therefore, lying is an acceptable ethic to accomplish one's purpose. In other words... There's no right or wrong about how, you know, what you say to somebody. Words are just tools. You say whatever you have to say to accomplish your purpose. And some of you may have seen that statistic where they did a survey of 40,000 people. And the question was, do you habitually lie to accomplish your agenda, whatever your agenda is? Remember, remember the number? What percent actually admitted to habitually lying to accomplish their agenda? 93%. Now, how you get people to tell the truth about lying, I'm not sure how you do that. But, they claim, they think they have a good number there. Okay? The fact that they got 93%, I mean, that's pretty incredible. This is reality out there, so when you're dealing with people that are postmoderns, you need to be ready. Okay? Now, what I had happened to me two years ago, I went on a trip with my wife, and we went to Canada, and we had a great experience there, wonderful time. Great people. They were responsive to the message and just had a wonderful time coming back from Canada. And um, I'm just happy and fat, dumb and happy on that airplane. Coming back and I get to DFW Airport. We land on the on the tarmac. I turn on my cell phone and it lit up like Christmas tree. Man, everything. I got text message. I got voicemail and it's ringing. Everything's going on all at once. Well, it's my daughter calling me to tell me that our house is flooded because our water heater uh, which was sitting in this super duper pan that I had designed to protect against this very thing. By some fluke, it didn't work. And so it flooded the house. And so now, you know, I, I, we're going to get home to a disaster on our hands. So we were not, it was a massive thing. It, it was, you know, nearly 100 grand of damage to the house. And so we, we had to move out, which, uh, you know, that's the first time I've ever been forced to move out of my house. It was a very difficult experience, very trying. I remember just being in the house just weeping, you know, at what we were having to go through. So um, anyway, we wound up in an apartment, and uh, the lady who handled our temporary housing um, uh, lied to me on several occasions. So first of all, I explained to her, I said, lady, you need to understand that that I have a home office, and this is my place of business, and I have to have high-speed Internet. It's very important that I have high-speed Internet. So first of all, she claimed that the Internet modem would arrive the day we moved in. That it would be there. I would not miss a day. We would literally move from the house to this temporary living situation, and I'd be up and running just in a matter of an hour or so. Well, we got there, and there's no modem. And we start tracing it down, and it wasn't going to be a modem for a week. So I'm sitting here without any kind of Internet access, and I'd been promised Internet access. So she decides, um, you know, that she's going to give me a temporary deal. I'm going to get to that in a second. But next thing she did is she claimed that the living unit was wired for internet service. Now, see, I told her, look, we have I have three computers, and they're going to be in different places, and they all have to be connected. I'd like for them to be wired connected, hardwired connected, not, not, not wireless. She said, no problem. The, the unit is wired for internet. I said, great, great, no problem. We get there. There's no wiring. I, I started looking around and poking, and I have Gene come over there. He's poking around. There's no wiring anywhere. Okay, so line number two. Okay, then she claimed that she would provide the highest speed internet service possible. I said, you need to understand, lady, I do webinars, I do conference calls, video calls, I do all kinds of things with people all over the country, literally all over the world. I've got to have really high speed internet, a lot of bandwidth. Well, the only speed I got was low speed, because that's all they had. And let me tell you, Doing a webinar at low speed is not pretty. It is not good. Many times, it just flat didn't work. In fact, what happened, I literally had to go, and while the house was being worked on, and my office is upstairs, I would, I would go up there at night you know, while they, all the debris is downstairs, and I would do webinars up there at night because we couldn't do it where we were living. And finally, uh, she provided me this temporary modem while we're waiting for the modem to show up. Well, it was a card, and she said, "Look, this is real easy. You just stick the card in the in the computer, and it'll connect you to the the 3G network of Verizon or whatever, and you can have internet access. Of course, it's still low speed, but at least you have internet access." And she was real easy. So I plugged it in. I spent an hour and a half or two hours. First of all, upgrading it. She said it would just work; it'd be no problem. I had to upgrade the software, and then you know finally got Gene to help me get it working. So we have this whole series of lies. And never, never did she apologize. Never did she say, man, I'm sorry I misled you. I, I assumed, I thought, I didn't understand. Never, no, none of that. You see, this is the way works, work. Because lying is not a problem. Lying is a tool. And if, they can, if it accomplishes their purpose, they're very happy with it. Postmodernism impacts the church. Did you know that? This may, may seem strange to you, but this guy... He happens to be the, a retired pastor of a church in England. He also is an atheist. Now, you, w- wait a minute. H- how, how can this work? Huh? How can you be the pastor of a church and be an atheist? Well, do you know how they do that? It's real easy. Postmodernism explains it. It's called private interpretation. You see? They have the right to interpret Christianity any way as they fit because there are no absolutes. There's no one interpretation. You know, so I can interpret things any way I want to. And so I can be an atheist, it doesn't matter. Do you see where this takes you? It's a scary place. And you wonder, Lord, how many atheists are there in pulpits around the world today? How many are there? They're with this very thing right here. You know who America's pastor is? Yeah. I mean, this is this is not my turn. I didn't put this on him. This is a press release right here. America's pastor. Okay, here he is. Okay? Don't you feel better having come to church today? This was a, a saying I first heard back in the late 80s. Okay? And it was all about church making me feel better. Now, I am not opposed to feeling feeling good. I want to feel good like you do. But I don't come to church to feel good. That isn't why I come. And hopefully it's not why you come. You you come to church because you've been assigned to be part of this body, or whatever body you are. You go and connect and be part of the body you've been assigned to. Okay, so given the predominance of postmodernism in the culture, how do you build a large church without appealing to a postmodern worldview? How do you build a megachurch? If you're going to go build a megachurch, how would you do that? we well, would have to do something like what Joel does here, which is we can't talk about hard things. We can't talk about controversial things. We can't talk about things that, that would offend people. We've got to water it down. And so what you have here is the reality of 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come when men will put, not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And so this is what we have going on today. If, if you have a culture appealing to the postmodern culture, it's going to be a very watered-down view of Christianity. This is the only way you're going to be able to build a large congregation. Okay, how about postmodernism and Christian music? Be careful with our decorations and music that seem to be based on an anthropology of human potency. Okay, be very careful here. There's nothing wrong with eye decorations but an eye decoration to a postmodern means something different than somebody who is biblical. Okay? You see, when you say, I can't hold my love back from you, I've got to sing, I've got to sing. See, a postmodern says, I can do that. I can love God. You know what biblically it says? You can't. The only way you can love God is he has to empower you to be able to love him. The Holy Spirit has to move in your heart to give you the grace to do that. Okay, How about this? I love, I love your presence. You know, I love you, I love, I love, I love you, Jesus. Well, it's a great declaration, but you, when you sing that, you need to say, Lord, give me the grace to do this. Empower me to do this. Lord, I cannot begin to do this without your help. Now, that's the biblical approach. The postmodern is sitting over thinking, I can do this. Look at all these great things I'm doing for God. See, that's how the postmodern thinks. Or how about this one? Lord, I give my heart to you. I give my soul. I live for you alone. Postmodern thinks they can do that. And they think they are doing it. Someone who understands the biblical worldview knows there's no way without the empowering presence of Christ that they can do that. So please recognize when you sing these eye decorations. Stop. And just pray, Lord, give me the grace for this to be a reality. Make it more than words. You alone can make it more than words. I can't make it more than words. You can make it more than words. Okay. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the biblical truth. And so we, we as we deal with music and art and things like that, we've got to bring a biblical perspective. Now, let me let me just tell you a quick story here we're nearly through but I think you're gonna like this story okay this is a story about an attorney by the name of Horatio Spafford I'm just gonna read it to you it's a very powerful story sometime in 1871 a fire in Chicago heavily devastated the city and months before that Horatio Spafford had invested hugely in real estate by the shore of Lake Michigan the disaster greatly wiped out his holdings before the fire Spafford also experienced the loss of his son so he had five children, he lost a son, he has four daughters left. Two years after the fire, Horatio Spafford planned a trip to Europe for him and his family. He wanted a rest for his wife and four daughters, and also to assist Moody and Sankey. You know who Moody is? white Moody. And Iris Sankey. You know who Iris Sankey was? He was the George Beverly Shea of the 19th century. You know, the golden voice. So he was going to go help them in one of their evangelistic campaigns in Great Britain. He was not meant to to travel with his family. The day in November that they were due to depart, Spafford had a last-minute business transaction and had to stay behind in Chicago. Nevertheless, he still sent his wife and four daughters to travel on board the SS Villa de Havre and expected them to follow in a few days. On November 22, the ship, laden with his wife and daughters, was struck by the English vessel Lockhearn and sank in a few minutes. After the survivors were finally landed somewhere in Wales, Spafford's wife cabled her husband with two simple words, Saved alone, meaning the daughters died. Shortly after, Spafford left by the ship on his way where his beloved four daughters had drowned and pinned at hand, wrote the most poignant text so significantly described of his own personal grief. When sorrows like sea billows roll." The hymn, It is well with my soul, was born. And this is the hymn. And just look at this hymn. And you're going to see a biblical hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like a sea billow roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. It is well because God declared it to be well. My circumstances were not well. You hear this? He is grieving the loss of his four daughters, and he's able to say, by the grace of God, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest the blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That's why it's well. That's the only reason it's well. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. The trump will resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. The refrain is, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. But what made it well was not him and not his circumstances, but all about Christ and the work of Christ on the cross. That is a biblical hymn. So give us the grace, Lord, to sing it like that. Theologically, the best hymns are those that focus on what God has done for us, not what we think we can do for him. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to study your word and and, Father, we're challenged at the core of our being to really to be rid of the postmodern culture that we swim in and to really live counterculture, to live biblically in all that we do. Give us the grace to do that and to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen.